Live from Fezziwigs, this is Derailed Trains of Thought. Timothy. Hi there. How are you doing, Nick? Very well. I'm okay. Maybe it's just, I don't want to jinx it, but we've had some nice stops lately. I mean, last time I know. We, were, we were on the Muppet Theater, which, you know, like awesome. dream, yeah. you know, <laughs> and now here we're here in Fezziwigs and at, a, at their Christmas party, nonetheless. It's pretty awesome, it's, honestly. I mean, yeah. and I have to say, you look pretty nice in your top hat there and uh, your Victorian duds. More top hats, the better is what I say. Absolutely. Yeah. And bow ties. Bow ties are bow, everywhere. Bow, bow ties. <laughs> and cravats. Yeah. <laughs> but bow but ties are better. Yes. It, is, it is a very merry place. The only thing that can make it better is if they had some rubber chickens around. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can't have everything. That's true. You can't have everything. But but Merry Christmas, everyone. Yes. Merry Christmas, audience. We, um, we hope you enjoyed our epic, long 50th episode. It was uh, quite the adventure. It was it was more for ve- Tim than for us. <laughs> it was very adventurous, <laughs> but uh, it was fun. No, it was fun. Good stuff. Yeah. And so. now we're back on our normal. So don't expect two hours tonight. Yes, and uh, no echoes. Hopefully. No. <laughs> boom boom boom. <laughs> Good. Try to shake off the yeah. Horrors. Well, have you noticed here? There's you know everyone's having pretty much fun, but there's that one guy who's like trying to do the books or something. Yeah, yeah. he's kind of a stick in the mud. Yeah, I mean maybe we'll have to talk about him later. <laughs> <laughs> Behind his back. And, yeah. yeah, that seems that seems like very, very festive. <laughs> That's best part of Christmas, right? Hanging around people you don't care all that yeah, much about. Yeah, I'd talk behind them. Yeah, and you go get the whole family together and, you know, gossip away. So, yeah. Okay, okay well, that, I don't think... That, that, yeah, that went in a weird direction. <laughs> all right. A lot of eggnog here. True, true. All right, shall we go ahead and start with our story school? Absolutely. All right. Well, well, Christmas is obviously about, you know, trees and bells and lights and other things. But normally it's also about Christmas, <laughs> as in Jesus being born. Yes. Um, and so Tim and I thought tonight we would talk about redemption in stories, since this is, you know, a topic that comes up quite a bit in Chris- you know, at least traditional Christmas stories. Mm-hmm. Um, not as much in some of the newer ones. Um, but, and I thought we'd probably start with kind of that classic A Christmas Carol. It is the definition of a uh, well, in a sense, it, it it was the one that created the genre. You could almost yeah. say, it's, yeah, quite old. Yeah, it is quite old. Um, now, he's wrote some other Christmassy sort of ones, right? I've not read the Cricket on the Hearth or what. Yeah, that's that's one I think that's well, at least it's it's considered a Christmas one. I've got, we've got this book at my folks' place that's like Charles Dickens' a Christmas Story collection yeah. sort of thing. Just started it, and it, I mean, it takes place in the winter, but I couldn't tell you that much more about it, honestly. I don't think I've read it yet, so. But, but everyone's seen some version of The Christmas Carol. They've yes. done, like, Everyone has their favorite 20 version. 20 times. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We've talked about The Muppet Christmas Carol yeah, which here is before. probably my favorite version, <laughs> um, because when the cold wind blows, this is when we need Zach, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I think we got our fill of him last <laughs> well, time. <laughs> okay, that's true. That's true. <laughs> no, it was great to have all the guests on last time. But, very merry. Yes. So anyway, so we thought we start with the Christmas Carol as kind of a, a an archetype in many ways of kind of well, a Christmas story, yeah, and also kind of a redemptive arc mm-hmm. in a story and one that most people buy. 
Actually, full disclosure here, I think we had talked about before doing possibly doing Redemption for a Christmas episode before. I don't remember. I, I feel like that was something we talked about once, but early in the days of the podcast when I was still at a Christian film school, I was a little tired of the subject <laughs> of redemption because it came up a lot. Yeah. Um, because it is a very important thing for uh, the Christian faith, obviously. But, well, part of the reason we're fascinated by it is it's really beautiful, but it's not always easy to tell that story in a convincing way because, you know, if you do a redemption story in kind of a hokey way, people are like, eh. Whatever. Yeah, whatever. You're and so the modern sensibility is more as you do like this half-hearted, like yeah. half kind of changey thing. There's hope in the future somehow. Hence, and one of the reasons why the animated version of The Grinch is far superior to the live action one. Yes. Where it's kind of like, yeah, The Grinch had a point. Those who's are kind of jerks and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> It's been a long time since I've seen the live one. Yeah, I don't know much about it. That's just what my I, I've seen bits and pieces of it, but that was kind of the impression I got from the beginning of it. Yeah, and certain parts, like it goes to the Grinch's backstory and things like that, which a Christmas Carol also goes into uh, Scrooge's backstory. Yeah. But at the same time, it, I guess we can start talking about uh, Christmas Carol. Well, I guess first we should start talking about Scrooge himself. Yes, because uh, Scrooge is a tough nut. Yes, he's a tight-fisted, mean, crotchety old man. Um, <laughs> well, uh, the, I'm trying to think of some of the lyrics from Winnicott. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that blows, it chills you, chills, chills you, you to the, the bone. bone. There's, There's nothing no- in nature that feeds your heart like years of being alone. Some old hag sings that. Yeah. <laughs> Better than I do, but. More despised than any in the wrath of many, he's the this is Ebenezer Scrooge. Okay, anyway, we won't go into the singing the whole song, but the point is, he's the guy that no one really likes. Yes, and because he really doesn't, he has no compassion for anyone. He has, you know, he's very utilitarian. Everything, yeah. you know, get rid of the surplus population, which doesn't sound too far off some society planners nowadays. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> well, I mean, I, that's a great line because it's one that you can at once be horrified with and at the same time sort of look at yourself and like, you know, because yeah. sometimes poor people just seem inconvenient yeah. to us, you know, yeah. unfortunately. So they really set him up first off that he is, it's not like he's a misguided man. He's, he's a bad man. Yeah. Everyone tries, you know, his nephew tries to offer him and be nice to him. And all these people try a good thing. And there's this time after time where he's just like, no, humbug, humbug, and this and that and the other thing. So, you know, I think part of redemption, you got to establish first off that something's wrong. Yeah. Which seems like a, a saying the obvious, but you have to actually not just like, it's wrong, but I don't really believe it's wrong. Like, no one likes Scrooge at the beginning. Mm-hmm. He's not a, I mean, he's not a likable character in any real sense. He's not like he's one of those curmudgeoning, like, oh, he's really good, but he's not. Right, he's right. He's just, no, he's just Yeah, me. no, he's, yeah. <laughs> he needs fixing. Yeah, he needs fixing, and he and he doesn't really know it. And I wonder if that is one thing that um, we miss in a lot of uh, modern redemption stories, in that you can have people who are damaged goods, but there's, you know, it's... It's a lot harder for someone for society to pin down that something is morally wrong. I mean, we've talked about that yeah. on here before, but you know, that's that's an element that maybe doesn't get as uh, outlined as well. Yeah, really, I mean, there's har- really hardly anyone in the, that first you know section that much cares for. I mean, yeah, even you, so many good people like your nephew and um, Mr. Cratchit mm-hmm. are you know they deal with them, but they're like, uh, yeah, these kind of a lost cause, right? Yeah, and so and then that's where. Um, Basically, it takes, and this is something that I think is also very uh, missing in modern redemption stories sometimes, and again, some Christian stories can take this the wrong way, but it's interesting that for Scrooge, it takes 
uh, divine intervention yeah. for him to begin changing. And I, th- I feel like the more powerful redemption stories, if you guys actually broken, wrong, twisted, whatever, you need some sort of powerful outside force to jerk him. Jerk him awake. Jerk yeah. him awake, yeah. I mean, I, it, it wouldn't have to be a divine influence necessarily in a story, but it certainly is very helpful. Now, didn't you say there's one of Dostoevsky's stories that basically the whole book is trying to bring the character to a point yeah, of, large, uh, of crime, turning? Crime and Punishment, which is all 600 pages of it, is largely... Well, the first 100 pages where he commits his crime, and then like the next 500 is basically being racked down by guilt and impressions. And, and then there's this, I think her name's Sophia, it might be wrong, um, character who comes in and kind of is like the, the Christ figure in some ways. Mm-hmm. And kind of, it's, it's a case where he doesn't feel like he did wrong, but his conscience keeps pushing it. You know, so I, I guess it's an, it's an internal version of the ghosts Okay. in many ways. And then like like the last couple pages, like, and then, he, you know, this started his convert. This is um, highly summarized on how it's written. But this, you know, <laughs> the, from now on then, he, he had been, you know, would be his journey in his faith. Like he'd come to a point where he could actually accept faith that he'd, you know. That so it it's the okay whole point have. though, yeah, yeah, the whole point was getting to recognizing he was wrong and that he needed something and then in that case, because those guys are Christian, you know, of faith in Jesus, and then mm-hmm. that's a, like a whole nother. No, those guys said that's a whole nother novel, you know. <laughs> well, and that always struck me as interesting. You not having read it, just hearing that that summary, that strikes me as very realistic sort of depiction. You know, if you don't have this kind of divine intervention, it takes people years to yeah. push past their own baggage, get pushed past themselves well, in a sense. In uh, Les Mis, you have, uh, I mean, the divine intervention is basically the priest. Oh, yeah. You know, it's giving the candlesticks back. And that, you know, that's kind of the spark that changed uh, Jean Valjean. But most of the rest of the book is him wrestling out what does this look like in real life? Mm. You know, Mm -hmm. there's the point where someone else is charged with his crime and he's like, do I go? I have this good life. But he decides he has to go there. And then when, you know, Cosette starts falling in love with Marius, then he's like, do I give up the one thing in my whole life? You know, so. Most of Les Mis, oh, okay, not most, it's a, you know, it's a giant book. <laughs> but like the first, you know, the conversion happens relatively early on. Yeah, yeah. But then most of the rest of the book's working out, what does this look like? Well, and it's really interesting, too, the comparison with Javert in that story. Because yeah. Javert is very works-focused. Yes. You know, it's like you work, you have to obey the rules, follow the, these lines, you do go these guidelines. He doesn't really believe that much in grace, even though the evidence of Jean Valjean's having changed is, you know, yeah. basically everywhere on every, anything he touches. Yeah, exactly. yeah, Javert won't see it. And well, not until basically... His life is saved why, by what seems a miracle of yeah. this extended extending of grace. And then he kills himself because yeah. he can't deal with it. Yeah. So he, I mean, he's kind of like Scrooge. If he gets with the ghost of Christmas future, sees his grave, says, "Oh no, I'm wrong. I can't do anything about it. I'm going to just jump in this grave." I mean, it's like mm. you get to that point where either you accept the change and that you're you're wrong, or you say, "I can't accept that I'm wrong," and mm. self destruct. Yeah. And Javert is very interesting that way. He is. He, he, he really is. I think. I think a lot of people would see him as the. Um, I guess you could say he, he's the personification of religion as an institution yeah, gone awry. It, it can very well be that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know that's something that you know even Christians are always struggling with this battle between truth and love. And you know, in in the end, I think the the cross does show that it's a balance between love and truth. And. Uh, I'm, I don't I'm getting, mean, yeah, I'm getting this all muddled, but yeah, because <laughs> you can't, you know, you have your Ron, who's that pastor out in 
the pastor that said basically the hell that doesn't exist. Oh, um, Rob Bell. Rob Bell. Yeah, you you have got your Rob Bell. Well, you like it's all well, grace. Yeah. yeah, it's all grace. Yeah, but then at the same time, then I don't know if there isn't truth and grace doesn't really mean anything. Yeah, it is very much that the whole between a holy God and loving God. Yeah. Are you justice and right. mercy? And what's interesting about um, Jean Valjean is many times he's you know he'll be like, look, I will pay the price of this, but let me do my mercy yeah. first. Right. Well, and it's interesting too. That's I think that's one of the strengths about a Christmas Carol is that it does by going into Scrooge's past, you do see how a lot of the ways that he turned out was just a series of choices that he yeah. made to put money ahead of his his marriage and you know, things like it, that. It's interesting. It's one of those cases where, you know, flashbacks nowadays tend to be very much used for helping us reevaluate characters. You know, Lost did that all the time. Yeah. But often in our modern sensibility, it's always like to explain how they got that way, but almost in the sense that it's excused mm-hmm. or like, of course it would end up that way. Yeah. But it, it's very interesting that Scrooge... It's like if, if you went through these situations, you would do this too. You, maybe just me, but I, I never got the sense that Scrooge would... Yes, he, he had he had circumstances that pushed him away, but he also made choices. I mean, you get the sense that it's not simply environment made him this. Yeah. You get a sense that it's environment and mm-hmm. things he decided to do. And that's an important part of the story of, yeah, recognizing your role in all of it and then... Now that you've kind of established that, then where do you go forward? And that's where we get the Ghost of Christmas Present, which is a very interesting one in terms of of a redemption story. Because we often don't focus on the present as much when it comes to sharing the good news, the gospel. Yeah. You know, we do a lot of focus on um, this is what happened when Adam and Eve came, the fall of man, inherently sinful, yeah. all the stuff. Anyway, you future, know, like, future here's like revelation. Yeah. Are you going to heaven or hell or, you know, yeah. what sort of thing? But it's easy to get lost in the details of the present. Now, for Scrooge, it was a lot of coming to terms with what other people are like. Like, seen, uh, <laughs> like, like actually seeing a mirror, for the first time, really a mirror of what people view him as yeah. in some ways. And I think there is there is a portion of that that does happen for actual people when they're first learning about the Christian faith. You know, when you... Because people have can have so many wrong ideas of what the church is really all about yeah. until they get to start getting to know people at a church and realize, oh... This is what this is like. And that's, you know, that and that can be very instrumental in that sense. I don't know if I can think of very many other stories necessarily that, not off the top of my head, that, that really focus on that as much. Not off the top of my head, no. Yeah. But, I, I mean, mean, you have a little bit of, uh, okay, not quite, but it, it's interesting. It's a Wonderful Life is almost the reverse yeah. of Christmas Carol. But in many ways, it's that, that's where I'm trying to say, you're not as horrible as you think you are. <laughs> Uh-huh. Which is an interesting yeah. twist in many ways. Like he's kind of like a relatively, you know, exemplary sort of person, mm-hmm. but he can't see it properly. He, like redemption in some ways is like being able to finally see properly who you are. Mm-hmm. And that that is an important moment or important point too. That a redemption story is not always just about a completely lost person like Scrooge. Sometimes it is about someone who has been going on a good path and yet, you know... Is lost. Is, you know... <laughs> yeah, they take a wrong step. They go take a wrong turn or... Yeah, in George's case, it's not even that... It's not necessarily that he made mistakes that got him into the, like, the suicidal yeah. state that he was in. It was just kind of this accumulation of life kind of beating him down. Yeah. And uh, sometimes I like that. Uh, you really do need just the reminder of who you are and your place in the universe, which sometimes can appear very bleak and 
really doesn't have to be. Because in the third part of, you know, Christmas Carol is basically, and here's where you're going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which, like, the Muppet Christmas Carol, that is frightening. I mean, that, that Muppet is one of the scarier Muppets I've seen. <laughs> well, that, Demen- It's basically Dementor before Harry Potter ever existed. <laughs> yeah, at that point, he's not really a Muppet. He's more of a, a creature. <laughs> yeah. It, interestingly, I think Muppet Christmas Carol is probably the closest the Jim Henson company ironically because it was after Jim Henson passed away but it was the closest their company came to kind of melding all their interests because you had your Muppets being silly and then you had your creatures like the Ghost of yeah. Christmas Past and then all the spooky setting and you know very realistic I mean there's the same cinematographer who did Muppet Christmas Carol also worked on the storyteller. And, okay, and you, you can, can kind of tell that. Yeah, you can see that once once you realize that helps that. a lot. Actually, yeah, there's a continuity there, and so anyway, it's that's a fascinating thing about that movie, and I just got completely off track. <laughs> but. <laughs> but so I mean, for Scrooge, most of his journey was learning who he was and what the consequences of that were, mm-hmm. and then what happens then is he doesn't just like say I'm sorry, but he's actually vastly different afterwards. I mean, he's still yeah. Scrooge. He's still... He's still going to he's he's still still gonna gonna be a moneylender, co- yeah. And, he, and he's still a little crotchety to a certain extent, but he's... But he, he knows a, how to play with, it, yeah. with his own self. He, he has a much deeper self-awareness than he ever yeah. did before. And I think sometimes... Like, you, you get action movies where you're like, the main character has these demons, and, you know, and he's going to redeem himself. Kind of the phrase, but it's, it's not so much to redeem himself. He's trying to balance out things he did in the past yeah in many ways which is i guess is in many ways a more modern sense of the redemption story it's not so much that i'm changing it's that i did bad things previously i'm going to i'm not really a different person but i'm going to make better choices make good choices yeah which is ironic as it almost does in that sense it almost does become another sort of works-based sort of redemption yeah I was telling you the other night, I thought it was really interesting. On Once Upon a Time recently, they had a discussion with the queen, Regina, who's taken a lot of, you know, she's gone through quite a long redemptive journey yeah. of, in, in her case, it basically was instigated by her adoptive son. Yeah. That basically she wound up wanting to become good for his sake. And in the process, also kind of wanted to become good for realizing that she had made mistakes yeah. and et cetera, well, et cetera. It's interesting because her son really made her see herself as the evil queen and what that meant mm. as opposed you know before she's like i'm an evil queen aha i'll just be that way yeah because you pushed me into this yeah. and basically blaming everybody but herself yeah, for exactly. what she was doing but yeah since then she kind of got this outside perspective that she would actually listen to and she's gone on this great journey but then there was this interesting conversation that she was having with snow white saying well is it really good if you're just doing good things to try to for, you know, karma basically. Yeah. Is that is that really good or is that just kind of working the system sort yeah. of thing? Which is an interesting question and not one that I'd seen very many in the secular realm who yeah. deal with redemption stories really ask. Actually, the the Henry thing, uh, her son thing, remind me. The other thing about uh, Christmas Carol is that it's initiated by people he trusts by the Mar by Marley. Those are people. I'm starting, I'm doing the yeah. the. the um, Muppet version, where it's people. <laughs> um, but, you know, Marley says, trust that, you know. A person, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because you do almost need a, having that relation, that close person you care for. You know, that was the only person Scrooge cared for in his whole yeah. life, almost, except for the girl he almost married. Right. Um, well, and in the Christian faith, I mean, unless you're really, really desperate and start crying out to God because you don't have anywhere else to go to, 
a lot of people, if they don't believe in God, that's not how they're going to be introduced to him. Yeah. They're, you know, they, through actual people. Yeah, it's through actual people. I mean, that's why the church is called the body of Christ, yeah. because we are his representatives. So what do you think we can uh, learn from the Christmas story about making our own redemption stories? Because you're right. A lot of times it can come off hokey, especially if you come from a very, you know, because there's different levels of how realistic people do it. You know, if you're writing a fantasy realm, it's going to be different than writing a, you know, conversion story for a fiction. Yeah. For like, a Christian fiction Like book. modern New York or, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I always like to say about my characters, I need to break them, which is basically what the Christmas Carol is. Yeah. It's, you know, a giant breaking of it's, Scrooge. It's true. And then you have to pick up the pieces and, you know, because another example in Christian fiction, but, you know, more fantastical is Eustace from yeah. mm-hmm. in Dawn Treader because it's that whole, he turns into a dragon, which is kind of his seeing himself different, you know, as people see him, you know, he starts hearing people talk about him and stuff like that. And then it's that painful and it's always pain. Redemption's always painful. Yeah. I, and I think that's an important key that, and I, and, I, and I'll, I'll clarify this in a second, but redemption shouldn't be too easy. Yeah. Not to say that you are in it because obviously grace is a gift. It's a miracle that God just ha- chooses to give to us. But at the same time, getting a person to a point where they are saying, I want to be different. This is who I want to be. I, you know, if you're going with the full Christian story, I place my life in, in God's hands. Getting a person to that point is never easy. <laughs> and, I, and I wonder if that's sometimes, and I have not seen a lot of, you know, what people call hokey or cheesy redemption stories. But I, I don't, but I wonder if sometimes if it is, the drama's not there, you know, from even just from a, a art point of view. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, we're saying it's hard, it's difficult. That's inherently drama. Yeah. I mean, if you're converting it into fiction. That's true. Uh, I'll give you, here's an example of what some of my peers, when I say peers, film school people would think is hokey. Um, Facing the Giants, which okay. my family likes a lot. Um, I know there's I a lot. I've seen that one. There's a, there's a lot of Christians who like Facing the Giants and the other Sherwood Pictures movies. But that movie loses like any real sense of conflict by about halfway through because uh, it's about a dad that basically decides to start taking his Christian faith more seriously, starts teaching his football team about some of these things Mm -hmm. and they start winning more games. He gets a raise, he gets a new car. God's it's like, you know, put your faith in God and he'll start put doing these great things in your life, which uh, may happen, (laughs) but that's, it's bordering prosperity gospel. It doesn't really go quite that far into that territory, but it's, Definitely kind of going on the sense of your life will become much better if you just kind of stick with it and do these things. Yeah. It just seems too neat. Yeah, it does. It, it does seem too neat. Now, there might be some people listening who would disagree, but that's why a lot of there's a lot of Christian artists out there who don't like those kind, yeah. of, kind of movies. I'm not seeing it myself. So I was just interpreting your words. But Going with a, a, a secular uh, story that does redemption very well, let's talk about Zuko. Okay, because yes. Zuko takes a from, long time from uh, the Last Airbender. Yeah, Avatar: The Last Airbender. He takes a long time. I mean, basically the first season he's kind of a stick in the mud, but at the same yeah. time they do a story pretty early on. You're like, oh well, there's he's a he's a really interesting person. They're, you know, the, yeah. they, they go into why he why he acts the way he does, yeah. and then in season two he has this basically this, this one conversion moment where his uncle who's basically been working on him this whole time yeah, yeah like, and, he's un- and that's the thing another you got a close associate working on the person mm-hmm. yeah and basically he convinces him not to do this this one bad thing and at first it, it appears like this is a conversion i mean he he even like goes through kind of this 
a metamorphosis. He's just like where he's like he feels like sick because he's done something that's so contrary to his nature. And you think, aha, he's changed. And then he betrays his uncle. <laughs> and you're like, well, wait a minute. I thought, but yeah. that's the thing. Sometimes a person like starts taking the steps to change and that old nature just comes right back. Yeah, and that's, I mean, not only is it realistic, it's great drama. Yeah, <laughs> it really is, yeah. And then like, even if I remember correctly, when he gets to like season three and he actually starts. Mm -hmm. And he's, he's like, like, why, like why, why am I so bad at being good? <laughs> <laughs> He, he fully recognizes, like, wait, something's wrong here. Yeah, it's like this is it's, it's not an easy thing for him to. I mean, he's try. He really is trying. Like when he's trying to like basically get the 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 heroes to accept him. Yeah, but uh, it's not easy for him. Well, <laughs> and and that is good drama. Yeah, it is. And it feels and it feels real because no one just changes overnight. So okay, so I'm gonna so Star Wars. I remember it, I was in this logic class with um, Corduan. What's his first name? I don't remember. But anyways. Or maybe it was his book I was reading. But the redemption of Darth Vader, he says, is very weak. Mm. And from what we're saying here, uh -huh. it doesn't meet most of the criteria. Yeah, it kind of just happens. Well, you you do have the one criteria, which is the person that's close to you. He does have that. He, he obviously really wanted to be... I mean, there's some struggle, but it, I mean, I suppose it might... It, you get the flashbacks, you know... 20 years later in the prequels and stuff. So mm -hmm. you saw that he had yeah. stuff, you know. But it, it does have, I mean, I like it. But yeah. but it does, you do sometimes get redemptions that are, happen almost because they need to happen. Mm -hmm. You know, and that one, it, there's... And I think it's arguable that there might there might have been more in, in Anakin and Vader underneath the surface that Return of the Jedi just as they get into because that's not the kind of movie yeah. it is. I mean, it's interesting when I've heard of stories where parents have shown their kids Star Wars first time in the order of four and five and then goes to one, the prequels two. one, two, and three and then see six. And I think that would give... I think it helps a lot more because you have a lot of... Yeah, well, because not only do you have, like... It's interesting to think about the moment Anakin first turned was, like, right right when the Emperor was doing... When Palpatine yeah. was, was doing a Force Lightning and killing someone. And now it's interesting to think about him doing it into his... You know, his, own yeah, son. his own son, and was the only remnant of you know the one thing he besides his mother he really loved. Yeah. So yeah, there's a, there certainly has been expanded with the prequels, but I think movies and do sometimes they have to take the shortcuts because the story, the whole story is not redemptive. You know, Christmas Carol you got the hour and a half, two hour movie that's yeah just doing that with a character, mm -hmm. and you know if it's just one of many things going on, sometimes it doesn't happen. Yeah, sometimes yeah, which is unfortunate. I mean, you would like this, uh, yeah. You would like to see it a little bit stronger, but, but sometimes, sometimes I think it's it's become in some types of movies shorthand. Yeah, and like like they're not going to explain all the changes. They're just like he used to be good, he turned bad, he had some some connection to a friend, and then at the last minute he decides not to kill. Right. So and so. And and in an action story, I mean, you can almost say that it's part of you know you're in these very extreme circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are there's a the phrase battlefield conversion you yeah. know that you know yeah. that's understandable where that comes well, we, from we just had a, basically a, a redemption in uh, once upon a time and we just watched with the ice oh, that's, queen that's yeah. true yeah that that happened very kind of spur of the moment but yeah. it was it was kind of set up i mean i mean it was set up like you could kind of see how, again i think it kind of went back to there is for her especially there was this trigger moment where 
basically her whole world changed. Yeah. And then once, then when she realized, we kind of reinterpreted the trigger moment in yeah, many ways. Mm-hmm. Then that that changed a lot her whole perspective. But it does seem like many times, not always, but you see many times in drama, you see there's usually one or two climactic moments. I mean, there's things like Crime and Punishment where it's more of this slow burn, you know, for a long time. But that's not actually very common mm-hmm. unless you have a whole story that's ma- made to do that. Yeah, exactly. All right, so we better wrap this oh, up. Oh, okay. So, so redeem your character. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. Short and sweet. <laughs> Short and sweet. So, yeah, but no, I think it is valid to say, you know. And it's a, it's neat draw. I mean, it can be a, that in itself can be a very powerful, done well story. Yeah. I think if you, you know, if you're good enough to combine that with other things in some sort of massive epic mm-hmm. um, of 10 books of 1,000 pages, you know, <laughs> it could be really, really good stuff. Yeah. You because know, a long, drawn out uh, redemption story can be enjoyable. Which, you too. know, we don't, don't have time to mention Lost, but there's a number of. Uh, Which ones actually, like that. I should throw in here real quick. Um, because I, th- I thought about this before. You know, the series uh, Naruto just ended. Oh, yes. Um, or Naruto, depending on how you say it. I know, I think the anime purists say Naruto, but anyway. W- I was talking about it with my sister one time, and she was pointing out that there are almost too many redemption stories in Naruto. <laughs> like, based, And this is a very Japanese thing. You know, like all the villains have some sort of like reason for why they do something. Yeah. They're very, you know, the whole Shintoism, very like all beliefs are kind of equally valid depending on how you look at things and so like that. Um, and it, it, the, the first couple, you know, cool, but it did seem like every villain <laughs> or every antagonist eventually had some sort of like, even if it was just a small moment of redemption before they died. And as Rachel put it, real life doesn't work like that. Yeah. I'd uh, like to see it sometimes. Like some people really like that in their drama. Like, yeah. Yes, everyone's good. <laughs> at the last minute. But. Yeah. Use it. Use we, it I'm sure we can talk more, but we better. Yeah, we yeah, better move. It's really, it's really a manner of trying to make it real. Yes. And I think I think and Christmas make it real within the context within of the context story. of the world. And I think I think Christmas Carol was one of the popular ones that you can borrow stuff from. It's a you can almost well, I don't know if you I don't want to overuse the the word eucatastrophe because not yeah. every happy ending is eucatastrophe, but there's a lot of it's a really really good ending. Yeah. So yeah. now time for soundtrack. Right. For my soundtrack today, um, apparently at one point on the Dreamcast, there was a video game called Grinch. The Grinch. And, you know, obviously that's The Grinch Stole Christmas. And I thought, hey, okay. I think it was probably based off the Jim Carrey movie. Yeah, it looked like it from the screenshot. Yeah. I never played it. Apparently no one's played it because, like, (laughs) people couldn't even find, like, the judges couldn't even, like, find a good file to compare it to. But... (laughs) Well, it was on the Dreamcast. Yeah, (laughs) true. Which, actually, they they say the Dreamcast was a good system, but it was... A movie tie-in game for a system that not very many people have. Yeah. Um, but anyways, this is called Whovie and Waltz. Not Doctor Who, but... Um, <laughs> Whovilles. <laughs> Whoville. And it's uh, remixed by Brandon Strader. And it's... Uh, very Nightmare Before Christmas. Christmas, yes. Yeah. So, enjoy.
Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I really, I really like the the sound of that one. Yes, it's pretty enjoyable. Very unique. Very unique. I guess then we'll just jump straight into our take on tales. So, okay, well, we originally thought about talking about uh, strictly Christmas programs and things we hadn't seen that we just recently seen. Yeah, because we, we like talking about Christmas specials on here uh, around this time of year for our December podcast. Yeah, but I hadn't actually seen any new ones yet because for like <laughs> for like the first time in quite a while, I saw a lot. I saw like like two movies in the theater like back to back. Like I mean, for me, yeah, you don't get you know this summer I didn't go to hardly any movies. No, recently we, I've seen like all kinds of movies. Yeah, so we realized we might get more material, or at least Nick might have more yeah. material for an end of the year well, thing. And, than a, and we figured there's a lot of good movies that have just been out. Yeah, which now we will get to a Christmas special that is new for me yes. at the end of this uh, discussion. Yeah, so we're, we're not completely one. forgetting Christmas, but yeah. Christmas has turned into let's release all the movies that could have come out in summer, but we wanted to wait. Yeah. <laughs> well, some although a number of these came out in November too. Yeah, that's so, true. Well, yeah. Namely, I think the the first one you want to talk about was uh, Interstellar. I'll take Interstellar. Yeah, okay. I really, I really. Well, first off, just if you haven't seen Interstellar, you should probably go see it. Yeah, it's probably actually probably can't anymore by the time this comes out. Maybe, uh, maybe, somewhere. probably. Yeah, yeah hard. hard to say. Anyways, Christopher Nolan, which I've enjoyed most of his stuff. Mm-hmm. I was bugging Nick to see this because I, <laughs> I knew it'd be up his alley. Because I, I always, I always tell Tim and other people like you don't get that many good classic science fiction movies anymore. And you got a lot of like space adventure stuff, like you know they're basically comic books in space. Yeah, which I, I, I enjoy as well. Oh sure, but it just you know. 2001, you have, and then Stargate kind of tried to be alien, something that sort alien, of alien kind of is. Yeah. I don't consider Stargate uh, well, hard but, well, fiction. Well, not anymore, but I remember back in the 90s, I I was desperate for any sort of sci-fi. Oh. <laughs> you know? So I was like, Stargate, let's go watch it. And it was fun, <laughs> you know? But Interstellar was very enjoyable, I thought. I, I, I really enjoyed it. I think the one the one downside, I guess, is if you're expecting sort of your mind blow up like watching Inception, it's not quite that sort of no, movie. No, no, it's not. And that. you go in just thinking it's it's a it's just kind of a space exploration movie, mm-hmm. um, and done very well. I mean, all the actors do a good job. We get to have fun with relativity, <laughs> um, but I don't Relative watch a lot fun. of. <laughs> I don't get to watch a lot. I don't watch a lot of really long movies. But this one didn't feel. I didn't mind the almost three hours, mm-hmm. and, and 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 it's very very thematically dense, which I love. Yeah, I felt like once or twice that it could be a little tighter. And one was like one of the last times they were on the spaceship. It was like another scene of them on the spaceship and like really having to do this really difficult maneuver. Oh yeah, and hopefully I, I, can, I could see you cutting that or trimming that. Yeah, I I don't know if even that particular scene was bad, but it was just like. You had done it a couple other times in yeah. the movie, and having already seen Gravity, you know, just a year ago, it it didn't feel quite as fresh. And it's like, okay, we're doing another one of these scenes, you know. I mean, I, yeah. I enjoyed it elsewhere in the movie. It was just a little overdone. But I mean, it's a beautiful movie. Yeah, it, um, hugely ambitious. I you're mean, very amb- yeah, and I love Christopher Nolan many times. He'll just throw lots of ideas out there, and you know, <laughs> not it's not. You know, a lot of movies are kind of single theme. Like they'll have certain catchphrases that'll come up over and over again. You know, mm-hmm. they kind of like ca- different characters will use in different. F- well, there was that one poem that Michael. They Kane did use said. that an awful lot, <laughs> and that was one of the main things. But there's a lot of. It's very you know if you want to use polyphonic in many ways. 
you know, there's a lot of different themes. And no, yes. you know, some of them are more main or more main than others. There's things about, you know, human beings as explorers as versus just reacting to things. There's mm-hmm. ones about what is the nature of mankind. I I, I like that where they're like going to space is like, um, I think Anne Hathaway's character believes that nature is not evil, just man, you know. Yeah. But man's going out to space and there's at least one incident where uh he is evil. Yeah, yeah or, he is evil. or he's messed up. He's fallen. Yeah, that yeah, you know, that's fallen fallen mankind is part of the game you know and this is just part of i guess there's a book written about the science of interstellar which i'd like to read just because Mm -hmm. i guess most of it is theoretically possible Mm -hmm. not that it's easily possible but it could be (laughs) um yeah one the one drawback potentially about it being what was it polymorphic what was the word the man oh polythematic well i i said polyphonic because that's music yeah that's music right right Polythematic is a good term for it, but I was a little more on the fence uh, about. I mean, I I definitely loved the ambition. I loved the ideas. You know, I was looking. I was really looking forward to this movie, and I overall enjoyed it. But it was one that I was like afterwards. I was like, uh, that was an experience. I mean, and it, it, it is, but I couldn't put a, a finger on entirely what I felt about because I, I I wasn't like head over heels in love yeah. with it. I think partly because talking about polythematic. It is very strange, and I think this was kind of a, a sticking point for some people. That you know, you get this mix of like hard science fiction about what it, what it's like to live in space and the relativity stuff and all that that weird kind of thing, and then you've got this this uh, concept of uh, love being the fourth dimension, or or at least a higher dimension, or yeah. a higher dimension, yeah, or some, something like that, which is interesting, like. In stories where that's set up for that sort of thing, like say Doctor Who, yeah. you know, obviously I go with that. It's like, yeah, sure, yeah. that 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 sounds that sounds awesome. Um, <laughs> Green Lanterns, you know, you've got a whole emotional or spectrum thing yeah. of like emotional powers and all this kind of stuff. Cool, I love that kind of stuff. For this, it it kind of threw you a little bit because like it was a really weird line. It was because, and that's one of those things, you know, talking about redemption that yeah. like do something just right and, it, and it's meaningful do it the wrong way and it sounds hokey yeah and wasn't quite sure where i felt about it for a long you know, time it was interesting because i was thinking about this a lot of so- classic sci-fi is very humanist and believe in god or whatever mm-hmm. but they almost always in their stories pull off something to bring mankind to a higher level 2001 has the monoliths that bake you into a star child and you know bell and five despite realistic for the most part you know has the first beings are kind of and the four lines are kind of angels you know that the whole idea that evolution eventually leads to this higher higher state yeah and and that's very very common in in, um science fiction writers that even the hard ones that they they're grasping with the edges of science and trying to they like like um christmas carol they want an outside influence to raise mankind up yeah and it's just very interesting because it's very common, and I, you know, and I think that that the the love is a higher dimension thing is an interesting version of that. And, and I guess that sort of stuff I'm I kind of just take as for granted in science fiction uh-huh. um, because <laughs> I, well, I, I mean, read a lot of Asimov. You know, Asimov has one about the end of the universe and this computer reboots the universe by saying let there be light, and you know, there's all kinds of. That sort of stuff. And it does come in the movie though, it does kind of come out of nowhere. Yeah. At least Anne Hathaway's line. I mean, you got kind of the the bond set up with the father and daughter. Right. Very strongly at the beginning. Yeah. And I think I think in that first discussion thing, I was you know, I was like, okay, this is this is like I, I could tell right away, okay, some people are not gonna buy into this. But I was kinda like, okay, this is kinda interesting. Yeah. But then I had that 
one scene where he does go into another dimension. And if you haven't seen this, this is hugely spoilerific. <laughs> so um, you may want to skip ahead. But the whole bit where he's basically manipulating his past yeah. to basically communicate with his daughter. It was just, it was a little, it was a little, that's where I was really like, this seems like it's trying to, you know, put too many dominoes in motion. It's like, if you're going to try to communicate with this way, why just communicate with this way? It felt a little bit too much like, here's all this stuff I set up, now i got to, you know, put it, and that's when you're like, you know, the whole seeing the puppeteer's strings oh. thing. Well, I mean, but she, he's communicating in gravity. That's what the, that's the whole point of learning the fifth dimension, that you can actually interact with gravity in a new way. Yeah, which, anyway. I, that, that's why I say I've done fence. I can sort of see both sides. Yeah, I mean, it. I thought that seemed... My only real complaint about that scene, I thought it went a little long. I thought, yeah, yeah. I th- I, it's one of those scenes that I think is hard because you needed to make everything tie together, like, you know, a lot of dominoes set up for it. But simultaneously, depending on how astute you are about understanding the science and the, and the filmmaker's signs, mm-hmm. you might not need as much explanation, mm, yeah. I think. I can just, and plus, yeah. you have to buy, you have to not care about time paradoxes. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and the thing is, no yeah. matter how you do time travel, it basically do you think this is a better version or this is a better version. Do you think you can change time, which is kind of weird, mm-hmm. or do you think you can't change time, which is also kind of weird because then you do things before you do things. Yeah. And, I, you I, know, I could argue either one. I think Doctor Who tries to play, like, both sides. Yeah, and Doctor <laughs> Who's like, whatever we want for this story. Yeah. But <laughs> Well, like, there's certain things that have to happen. And, we, like, you know, Back to the Future is like, oh, you could just change stuff in alternate universes split off and yeah, yeah. Lost is like, it already happened. Yeah. You can't change it. Mm-hmm. And that's what, well... Spoiler, that's what Interstellar largely does. Yeah, I guess basically it and, is. And, and although it sets it up largely saying you can't change the past. I mean, she says that. Yeah, although it still does create that time paradox, even though yeah. because what he did is what wound up sending him in, you know, on his yeah. trip in the first place. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so that's that's there's a lot of stuff about Interstellar, and, and it's very it's a very uh, discussable movie. Like I don't know yes. that it's I don't know that it's a perfect movie, but it's. It's a it's a movie that I think it is an experience to watch. Yeah, right, and, at the I, very least, and I think also because he doesn't because it like the end is a good ending, but it's not like you know if it was a single thing you'd be like da da, but this one you're like, but what about that or you know what do you was this really the best way you know there's mm-hmm. it's a very discussable mu- movie and and it merits second viewing yes I, which I have not seen but I think it's certainly and good. and and I do get annoyed with people online that like. Because they didn't understand something, it becomes a plot hole, quote unquote, which, I th- which is n- not accurate at all. A lot of those things. I think he. I think not that they're not necessarily plot holes, but my guess is Nolan knows where there are. Well, I read an interview. He's like, he's like, I know where my plot holes are, where they aren't. And, you yeah. know, I think <laughs> yeah. there's probably not as many as they some people think. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, and I've said, I've said this before, but I think it, it's better to go on the air on the side of I missed something maybe I'll, I'll pick it up on a second I, I, watching we, as opposed to the filmmaker didn't spell out for me in black and white so therefore I, it's wrong I <laughs> always start with the presupposition that the all that the writer knows what he's doing yeah and maybe he doesn't but I'd rather start there yeah than have to be conned into believing he knows yeah give him the benefit of the doubt and I will say one thing about this movie from my whole fan wouldn't watch it I think it was a much more uh, emotional I mean it can be very emotional more so than some of Nolan's stuff I think yeah, probably. I know people had wet eyes and stuff. Yeah. Oh, um, cool. Not me, but yeah, other people. It was it hit close to home certain scenes. So yeah, yeah, I I can guess. It is, which and ones. it's very uh, relentless. Yes, it is. I was sitting next to my sister Summer during one scene. She's like, I can't, I can't put up, I can't stand this. Like, she's just getting, <laughs> she was nervous because this, it just moves. Yeah, there's a lot going on yeah. and doesn't linger. I mean, for being a relatively 
Yeah, I don't know if I could say quiet movie. Well, there's not action scenes. Yeah, really. not necessarily. Yeah. No, I mean, it's very deliberate in what it's doing, but it definitely feels like there's a lot. Do, do, yeah, but. it's ratcheted up. Okay. Anyway. On. Yes. Yeah. So, what, what was... Do next? I, I saw Mockingjay. Did you see Mockingjay? Yes, I did. Okay. Now, you've read the books, mm-hmm. and I have not read the books. So, what's your impression? Um, well, it's been a while since I read Mockingjay. I believe I read it before the first Hunger... Yeah, I read it before the first Hunger Games movie came out. And I'll be upfront. I think my favorite book in the Hunger Games series is Catching Fire, actually. Because it has, it's got the the launch of the rebellion, and it's still got the action kind of stuff, and it's like it's the most hopeful in the sense. And then, whereas Mockingjay found out the rebellion is, you know, not really all that great in some ways, and you know, it goes into the whole war is awful kind of stuff, and it doesn't feel nearly as like, you know, yeah. it, it's it's not a happy story, which. As I've and I've argued this with Rachel before, but it does fit with the overall tone of the series. N- Natasha's like uh, when she watched the movie with me, and she's like, "It was a well done movie, but it's just like the book, which is <laughs> <laughs> uber depressing." Yeah, yeah. exactly. She's like, yeah. "It's not that happy, right?" Yeah. Which and actually, it didn't strike me. Qu- I mean, I think I tend to get more emotionally invested, which is ironic because I've said before on here that uh, movies are more emotional than books. But I think I got a little more emotionally invested in the book just because. You spend more time reading yeah. it and you're in, in that world a little bit more. But a lot of, it's interesting, a lot of discussion in this movie that people got so hung up on, this is like, because they, they split the book into two parts, which, I don't know, I kind of thought the slow pace worked for for it. It's interesting. We're in a time period now where people used to complain about, oh, the book didn't have, or the movie didn't have all these things that the book does. Yeah. Well, now, like, okay, well, we'll give you we an extra time, movie, yeah. so we'll give you more time. And then people complain, like, why, why are you, you're just milking this for money and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And I'm like, ah, again, I can sort of see it. But, not, but at the same time, it does give you, it is interesting that it's not like this. Some people, I think, were complaining that it's a slower paced movie than the others two were, which it is. But it kind of works. I, I like the pay. I mean, I mean, it, it makes the movie what it is. It, ma- it doesn't make it like another fast sh- slam bang thing. Yeah. It makes it kind of this this idea of this movement that is slowly because you know real life things don't just autom- you know happen yeah. really quickly. It's, it takes a movement a, a bit to kind of build itself up. Well, it seems from my impression from the outside that the Hunger Games movies have done a very good job staying very. I mean, they're very well done. Very, you know, they don't seem to be going for cheap money necessarily. You know, yeah. and I think I think Suzanne Collins is involved in the scripts and stuff like that. I mean, to a certain extent, I didn't get the sense of you know, and we've complained about the Hobbit being a, yeah, blo- a bloated like movie that. series. It doesn't. It doesn't feel like that at all. I mean, it feels like everything is in this movie in Mockingjay for a reason and not just to pat it out. And even though it was slow, it didn't feel like it was wasted time or you know, it, I think it was just. You're just giving space for emotions and ideas and stuff. Mm. I think part of the problem is that the expectations. People people think this is a YA thing. You know, if this if this movie was not based on a YA book, if it was just a you know a famous director that people yeah. liked, I think a lot of people would have a different opinion on it. If it was like an independent movie sort of thing well, that moved into space. And the thing is, I I had no impressions going in. I knew nothing. You know, I, so I wasn't hoping for big action scenes at the end, or you know, I didn't care. Uh, uh-huh. What I liked about the movie is the the kind of thematic wise it really fascinated me to see the, this kind of dueling propaganda mm-hmm. you know you know this like I, I try to explain that is it's very interesting to be watching a movie about people making a movie <laughs> you know yeah. and not just make it's not like you're watching the Muppet you know when right. they're making a movie but it's like you're watching them 
purposely use real emotions to create emotion. create emotions. Yeah. And you're watching a movie that's doing the same thing and showing you how it works. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I, it's very interesting to do to to watch a movie self-consciously knowing that. Yeah. And it does it does kind of create some questions about okay, you know, we've had these other movies that basically were very, you know, anti-propaganda. Yeah. The way the capital basically was trying to manipulate emotions and all the, these kind of things and yet then here the good guys basically doing the yeah. same thing. Is it good is it bad? In the book it, it it kind of comes off as, you know, not a good thing. Katniss is like, this feels way too much like what I did with the Capitol. In the movie, I don't know that I got the same vibe. because, And I was weird. It's like, maybe I should be feeling, you know, maybe I should have red flags going yeah. on. But at the same time, it is for a good cause. You see, I, I got so, a little unsettled by it. Like, obviously, the PETA Capitol side felt way worse. Oh, sure, yeah. But the Capitol, especially when, um, what's his name, Blut- Plutarch? Uh, which Bill Seymour Hoffman. Oh yeah, I think it's Plutarch. Yeah. Um, especially when he talks, you see it's it's completely emotionless. The planning of it for him, yeah, for and, him, and it's I all think, about the selling. And that's is it right to do it just before it's for for right reason? And it's just it's it's very interesting to watch. You know, Katniss's true emotions basically being co opted. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, it's it's good to make people feel true things, but what is the purpose? Yeah, it's, it's 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 an ambiguous it's ambiguous in the movie, but it's unsettling. Yeah, and I think thematically that's why I enjoyed it because I'm like, oh, this is this is kind of a neat thing to see put on film. Yeah, well, and I think I think those the unsettling things will be more apparent in the second oh, movie. I, I, that's right here. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and again, that's one thing that people like me that kind of likes the having the the ending was frustrating for some people. Where like it was not a. I mean, the ending of the, of the Hunger Games series is one of its strengths and one of its weaknesses. And the whole war is ne- is not usually a clear cut thing. Yeah. There's not just a right and wrong side. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I guess that's true. But but do I want to read about it? Rumble, yeah. <laughs> rumble, 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 rumble. rumble. <laughs> All right. So yeah, that's what um, you saw. Big Hero Six. I yes. have not. Oh, but, you haven't seen it? Okay. No. Well, well, you can go ahead and talk your, about your it. Your mom saw it. Yes. Well, Rachel talked about it a little bit last time. Oh, that's true. So. I guess she did. Okay. Yeah, I don't know that I, I have much more to say. I mean, it's it's a really fun movie. I actually, I came out of that movie a lot happier than I came out of Mockingjay. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine so. <laughs> it's a happy movie. And, I saw I saw someone, um, one of the old students from Taylor Upland saying that she, she, she used to call it Frozen um, Tangled on Ice and that uh, <laughs> Big Hero 6 was How to Train Your Robot. <laughs> I don't know anything. I just thought it was funny. I haven't seen it, but I, I, I can see that. <laughs> I guess the only other thing I'd, I'd throw in is that if you feel that superheroes, comic books, sometimes gets too dark, this is a movie for you. Okay, <laughs> cool. I, I need to go see it at some point. Yeah. Okay. Do I have time to mention the wind rises? Oh yes. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Because I have to. T- Actually, unbeknownst to each other, we both recently watched the, uh, the Wind Rises. Yeah, I just saw it like um, over the weekend. I saw it Friday. Yeah. Oh, okay. So yeah, um, which is crazy. Yeah. Which I didn't even know I was going to see it. And like Libby just texted me, he's like, "Hey, I saw this is a DVD. Should I buy it?" I'm like, "Okay, if you want." <laughs> Anyways, if you don't know, The Wind Rises is uh, Miyazaki's last film. Apparently, I mean, yeah. I know he's claimed to be he's retired claimed to be retired times, before. Yeah, but I think is more more certain. It feels normal. Yeah, it feels more certain. I mean, it, this movie feels like a movie that an old man would yeah. would create. I mean, it's very introspective, kind of looking back on the. It's I, interestingly, it's a biopic. I mean, these are some real people that he that it's and, about. And it's interesting for Miyazaki. There's the the fantastical nature is very down. I mean, there's some dream yeah. sequences, and even those aren't 
no, way out of line. No. I mean, Studio Ghibli has done sort of these slice-of-life dramas before, but they've never been... This is the first one that's been directed by Miyazaki. I read somewhere that he uh, had originally written a manga. Yeah. for the, that, that was the Wind Rise, and then someone convinced him to write to do the... Yeah, which, which is interesting because that, that was I think that was the same thing that happened with his first movie. Oh, really? Nausicaa, uh, Nausicaa? the Valley of the which Wind. Which is like the, it's the only one I haven't seen. Oh, you've never seen that? That's the, I think it's the only one I've never seen. Oh, weird. That's, oh. Like, a, that's like a post-apocalyptic Princess Mononoke. Cool. It's kind of what I'll that take is. that. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was a, the Wind Rises is about this um, young man who's nearsighted, and he, he would love to fly planes, but he can't because he's nearsighted. And so he becomes an aeronaut... He, Aero, uh, uh, what, an engineer for an planes. engineer what, for planes. Well, I was trying to think of the official term. Aeronautic? Aero. No, that's not right. Aerodynamic? <laughs> know, something like that. Um, it might be aeronautic. I'm but basically, sure. it's all about. I mean, it's a lot of planes. I mean, very. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Miyazaki obviously knows his planes. Yeah. Um, well, apparently, I think his his father was an airplane engineer. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't know that. Uh, Someone was telling me and looked up. And was like, well, oh, what's okay. very interesting to me? It takes place in uh, early 1900s. Most of it in the Late twenties, mm-hmm. early thirties. Do we get to that far? Uh, it's uh, right before probably, World War Two. I believe. So. Yeah, I think par- probably by the end it'd certainly be and, in the thirties. It's, it's very interesting. It has a lot of commentary on Japanese culture at that time and how they were kind of backwards technology wise. Um, and the and it's called the wind rises because the quote at the beginning is the wind is rising. You must find a way to live. Mm-hmm. So the whole idea is kind of when things are the wind rises is kind of this idea that things are going out of your control. You know events are happening yeah. you know what do you do how do you live how do you find a way to live in that sort of situation you know war's coming your girlfriend has tuberculosis there's an earthquake and there's a lot of uh, a lot of just this character finding beauty inside a world that isn't necessarily most people would find beautiful yeah and and just visually it's gorgeous yeah i, I read on wikipedia that miyazaki said one of his inspirations for the film was something that the the man that was about what said was that all he wanted to do was make beautiful planes. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately those wind up becoming used for war, war. Uh, which is something that they, I want to say they wrestle with, but not really wrestle. It's more like they acknowledge. They acknowledge. Yeah. And it's very interesting for Miyazaki, but normally he's kind of blunt about his anti-war. Well, he's more blunt about it in his personal remarks than he is in his movies. Well, but, I'd he, say. Well, but you get I'm, a good, good sense. Like in Howl's moving castle, you know, that's, I mean, yeah, that's true. He's very upfront about this dumb war, and or or, or Castle in the Sky. You know, there's kind of this pacifist. I suppose thing. so. I, but yeah, I, I know. I, I know personally, he's more, he's more. I don't um, know that I'd say it's much more because I mean, it comes out across a couple of times. Well, I, mean, I, I, just, yeah. I guess I was surprised. No, I mean, they've hardly they hardly said anything besides like a couple of remarks, like, "Well, it's the weight's going to be a problem. Maybe we just won't put the guns on it." You know? Yeah, <laughs> and then everyone starts like, laughing. Ah, uh-huh. oh, yeah, right. But yeah. it's a, it's a. I mean, it's a very uh, introspective, like Tim said. You know, almost European. I watched it with my friend Brian, who was on the podcast last time, and mm-hmm. you know, he thought it had tones of Kurosawa. Yeah, I, I, um, I felt I felt similar. Like it was, it fell along in some ways. People have said like Princess Monoki or Spirited Away is their most Japanese one, but this is closer to Japanese like black and white, old black and white cinema that I've seen than yeah. any other Ghibli but, film. Uh, well, I guess it, I got echoes of um, Grave of the Fireflies sometimes. They're not so brutal. No, not nearly so brutal or depressing. I don't know. But. I was I, I just fell in love with the movie. I just really liked it. It was beautiful uh, colors. I mean, Miyazaki. And it, it's just a very subtle movie in many ways. Yes, very much so. Very I mean, it, like I had watched uh, Spirit Away earlier, and that's, 
I mean, there's as many themes, probably more stuff moving around, but it's very... That one's jam-packed with stuff. Yeah, and this is just, yeah, it's like a biopic. It's just slow, and mm-hmm. and it's a, it's a little bittersweet at the end, mm-hmm. and but you, you really get the sense of, the, you know, of a man just focusing on the beautiful things in life and not on the what they're going to be used for, what the end is inevitably, mm-hmm. inevitably going to be, both in yeah. his personal life and in his work life. Yeah, that, that's another reason why I said that it made me think very old man kind of looking back on. Interesting that uh, there was one shot at the very end when in his last dream sequence where he sees the planes flying up into like all the other planes. Very, it felt very much like a callback to Porco Rosso mm. where there's another scene like that. I mean, there's a lot of echoes of Porco Rosso in this whole movie because it's about yeah, airplanes because yeah. Miyazaki loves airplanes. Oh, he does but, flying. But it was in, the animation is just amazing on that sort of stuff. And, yeah. But but ahead. it was really interesting because he doesn't necessarily call back to himself a whole lot. But mm-hmm. that one, it looked, it looked very similar. I think they were even going in the same direction that they were in the, in like the dream shot in Porco Rosso. And some people have said that Porco Rosso is in some ways before this maybe was one of his most personal movies kind of because Porco is himself is kind of this grouchy kind of, <laughs> you know, guy, but at the same time has this like wink in the eye humor. It's very interesting when the lines was like an artist is only good for 10 years. <laughs> and I thought it was very funny coming from Miyazaki, yeah. <laughs> you know, who's been doing it for quite a while. That's that's a good point. <laughs> but yeah, I, I if you if you remotely like Miyazaki or or, you know, more literary anime is very, yes. very good. Yeah, it's very, very good. Okay, Tim, so your Christmas one, let's wrap up with this Which thing. actually fits in very well with this, uh, with talking about the Sudden thing. For a long, basically, since ever since I first started reading biographies back in high school about Jim Henson, this special is one that came up a couple times as one that was very important, both in terms of his company technically and the things they did. It was the first time they collaborated with Paul Williams, who would later write music for the Muppet movie and Muppet Christmas Carol. The special I'm talking about is Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. <laughs> uh, again, like I said, important for the, some of the Muppet performers considered it one of their best works. Uh, there's a certain segment of the Muppet Jim Henson fandom that really loves this thing. And I never gotten around to seeing it, partly because... I had heard that the versions that had been released before had been edited for various things. And I was like, well, I'm going to wait till there's like a definitive kind of cut. And finally, after like 15 years or whatever, I realized, okay, I'm just going to have to make do with what's out there. <laughs> Actually, then after I watched it, I looked up on YouTube, I realized, oh, okay, you can see. Because basically, the this thing is uh, was in, first introduced within the ha- was kind of bookended by Kermit, kind of okay. introducing, and he had some narration. But later when... Because Jim Henson Company owns this thing now. Okay. And, and but so they cut all the Kermit stuff out of it. So, anyway, with all that kind of pre knowledge of it, it was almost too much to really, you know, for it, for something, for, you know, there's a lot of expectations yeah. kind of for it to live up to. Um, and it's really, it's a very quiet piece, actually. I mean, it's easily the, the slowest production I've ever seen of that's a Jim Henson production. Hmm. Like it's very, uh, very low key, very folksy. It's takes place on, I mean, like all the music is very like folk music. Yeah. Like John Baylor would probably really enjoy this thing. And the first, uh, I don't know, 10 minutes, there's not even necessarily that much of a story. You just follow Emmett Otter um, and his mom 
as they go into town to run errands and they talk about how, you know, the, basically not doing very well financially and all this kind of stuff. And it's it's kind of like 1920s. It, the, the time period is very vague, but it's all yeah. meant to feel very kind of old timey. But eventually they there's this talent contest thing where there's a prize that they both want to win so they can buy a cool Christmas gift for each other, you know, separately, yeah. of course. It's almost Gift of the Magi, but in a weird twist, and I don't know how I feel about it, in a weird twist, each of them wound up sacrificing something of not their own, but of the other person so they could get them a so they could enter this contest and, you know, win huh. them a Christmas present. And I'm like, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> Interesting. But, yeah. So I, and that was one thing that I'd, I wasn't sure entirely what I felt about the message of the whole thing in general. And that was one thing I was worried about too, because again, talking about how like, you know, these Christmas specials or whatever can either feel like really meaningful or, or hokey. I was a little worried just from some of the music I heard, I've heard from it. It sounded very like kind of secular spiritualism. Yeah. You know what I mean? This kind of like we're all humanity kind of thing, which sometimes the Muppets and Jim Henson kind of did. And sometimes it really works and sometimes doesn't for me. Yeah. Um, and so I didn't know what it would be. The first time I watched it um, was probably not in the ideal environment because, <laughs> you know, it was when like a bunch of siblings were around. And really this movie, you need to, you need to sort of expect it to be quiet. Okay. But at the same time, it doesn't have like the, the same kind of like bright, colorful imagery that Miyazaki yeah. would. In fact, like it's very because it's all very folksy and it's the colors are all kind of muted and it's because it takes place in the winter. Yeah. And so it doesn't have some of the, you know, unique cinematography, but at the same time, it is very interesting from a technical perspective. It was one of the first times they did big set stuff. Like there are some times where you see puppets like walking around and like one the one of the long sequences when Emmett and his mom go into town, they're rowing a boat. Oh. And so, you, and it cuts back and forth the close-ups of where they're hand puppets, and then sometimes where they're actually on this huge set with actually this really long river that they created, <laughs> and wow. you've got these like remote-controlled uh, animatronics that you know he's act, he's really rowing the boat <laughs> along the thing, and so, so from that perspective, it looks pretty cool. But at the same time, then you also have some like marionette work, which is not nearly as convincing. Yeah. This special was filmed in between seasons one and two of The Muppet Show, okay. so that kind of gives you an idea of where it falls in timeline-wise. And so a lot of it was very important in developing techniques and, again, the relationship sort of thing. I feel like I kind of need to watch it again sometime to kind of see what, you know, confirm what I thought about yeah. it. Because like I said, there was way too much kind of buildup for this thing that I don't know that I could really have the same emotional connection that a lot of people have for this yeah. special. But... If all that sounds interesting to you, it might be worth a look. Sounds good. Any questions? <laughs> Any questions? Is it a classroom? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it sounds interesting. Is, is that the same band that shows up in the Muppet Show sometime, Jug? Actually, no. No. Okay. I, as far as I know, these characters never appeared in anything else, although they did make, years and years later, there was a stage adaptation made, like performed up in Connecticut somewhere. Oh, odd. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which I guess was like a mixture of... Of puppets and live people. Oh, interesting. There's some pictures on the Muppet Wiki if you want to look it okay, up. I'll, I might have to do that. So, cool. Yeah. And it's available. I know it's available on iTunes. It might be available on Netflix right now. That's something, you know, Netflix yeah. availability goes up and down. So, who yeah. knows? I might have to look in that. Okay. Cool. All right. But so that's your unusual Christmas special. Yes. So, those are uh, the good, bad, and the ugly of the holiday 
viewings. Yep. Mostly good. Yeah, mostly good. Yeah. I mean, I, I, nothing it, bad, actually. No, it's not a bad experience. Levels of goodness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so just, you have to go into Emmett Otter with a certain level of expectation, yeah. I think, for you to really. Uh, yeah, I, I go with nothing, so I'd probably. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like your littler kids might be kind of bored because it is, it is. There are some very stretches where they basically it's, they talk and they stop and sing basically, and even some of the, like the more upbeat songs they don't necessarily. There's not like fancy camera work or yeah. really anything uber exciting going yeah. on. But <laughs> no, it's interesting. Random side note: it seems to me that the one one of the downsides of the internet is now everyone has ten thousand expectations before they watch anything. Yeah, it's true. And there's a lot to be you know, like Interstellar went in knowing. Basically nothing. Yeah. Wind Rises when knowing basically nothing. Mockingjay when knowing basically nothing. And, and that's, maybe enjoy more that's, enjoyable that way. Sometimes that's the best way to be. Like with the whole new Star Wars thing come out, I'll probably watch trailers that come out, but I probably won't try to hunt down anything else. Yeah. No, I, I don't like hunting down too much information, that's for yeah. sure. But we got to yeah. wrap this up because we're running long and we got a long soundtrack at the end here. Oh, yeah. Tim decided to almost go Glowworm Jim ass. <laughs> well... <laughs> Nick has such a weird Halloweeny thing. I was like, I gotta have something that sounds a little more Christmassy, yeah. and uh, mine's always a little untraditional. So, and I didn't have time to find anything shorter. So, so. should we do our? Okay, I guess give your intro, and then we'll do our no uh, contact, uh, contact. No, we first. We do contact. Okay, info fine. First. We'll do that way today. <laughs> so, uh, you can get a hold of us at uh, derailedtrains at gmail dot com if you'd like to email us. Man, I got a tickle in my throat now. Uh. <laughs> we gotta finish this up fast. Um, our website is derailedtrainsofthought.blogspot.com. Uh, you can see us on YouTube at, is that Derailed Trains of Thought as well? Um, or just Derailed? I always forget because I'm signed in on my computer. Okay. So. I, if you look up Derailed Trains of Thought, yeah, that'll come. Just type that in, you'll find us. Um, and, and also mixler.com slash Derailed Trains of Thought. And subscribe to us on YouTube. I mean, iTunes. Oh, you should subscribe to us on YouTube too. And Stitcher and yeah. anything, yes. <laughs> All right. So this song is another remix by Brandon Strader. Uh, completely coincidentally, I, I, we did not plan that. We both watched Wind Rise at the same time. We both did Brandon Strader. <laughs> Things are just aligning, right? It's a remix from the game Scott Pilgrim versus the World, the game, and it's called One Up. And it is uh, starts off very. It kind of mixes in between acoustic and techno-y, so but it does have some Christmas stuff in it. So hope yeah. you enjoy. Uh, this has been Nick, and this is Tim. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Mm-hmm.